Heavenly Father, I ask that as we look at this text today, your word, both to the Corinthian church and to us, that you would enliven our minds, enliven our hearts and our spirits. Lord, that we would see our place in your kingdom and Lord, that we would be encouraged to grow for the good of the body and the glory of you. Amen. Please be seated. So I have this friend that went out, and he's about my age, and he decided that he was going to go and buy a sports car. And this sports car had a huge engine. It was a beautiful black. It took corners like nothing else. It accelerated like nothing else. And he got a real sweet deal on it only to find out that there was a little piece wrong in the electrical system. And so here that sports car sits in his driveway most of the time because it won't start. <laughs> All because of some stinking little part that's gone awry. And he's taking it to mechanics. They can't identify the part. They can't figure out what's going on. All that power all that sleekness sitting in a driveway. <laughs> so it is with the body of Christ. So it is with the body of Christ. Uh, last week we talked about um, uh, the Lord's Supper, and we looked at the divisions that were going on in the Corinthian church between those that were much better off and those who were poor. And those who were much better off, of course, were sectioning themselves off. Before that, in the week prior, we talked about hierarchy, hierarchy and we talked about roles. And Paul continues to talk about that here. This is part of a larger section. And the temptation with this passage is to jump and look at all of the gifts of the Spirit, right? All of, all of the things that are, that are given to the church. And while that's very warranted, and you, know, you can take time to look at that, that's not the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is, in fact, rather, that the Lord has knit us together as a church, and that every part is needed. So if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Paul's letter, his first letter, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And look with me at what's going on here. Let's look, jump right in. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed so what's Paul going to talk about? He's going to talk about spiritual gifts first here. And there's some confusion as to what these gifts actually are. We're going to come back to that, but you should put a star next to spiritual gifts or circle it or underline it if you're a person that marks in your Bible or just you know, keep it in your head. What are these spiritual gifts? Is the first question 
that we should ask. And the second is, how should we use them? So Paul starts by giving the church in Corinth a framework, right? First, he reminds them that the type of gift that is a spiritual gift is reflective of the giver of that spiritual gift. Paul starts with a contrast. Look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? Let's unpack this a little bit. When Paul writes to them about spiritual gifts, why is he talking about them being led? Why is he talking about them being pagans? Well, because this is to show that the gifts of God, the spiritual gifts of God, are not like the supposed gifts of the pagans or the Gentiles. So keep in mind the Corinthians, um, most of whom were Gentiles, are coming out of a pagan system, right? They're coming out of going and sacrificing to pagan idols. They're also coming out of a system that was very active demonically. Okay? What's behind the pagan gods? Demons. All you have to do is look at what the pagan gods require. Things like child sacrifice. Things, I mean, that there's, there's all sorts of things that are behind the pagan gods. But the pagan gods actually had power because of the demonic. Think about it. It's not just here in Corinth we see this in the Bible. Remember when Moses, I'm going with, uh, through Moses and Exodus with the children downstairs in Sunday school right now. Remember Moses is, is called to take his staff and throw it on the ground in front of Pharaoh and then grab it by the tail and the staff becomes, it becomes a snake on the ground and he grabs it by the tail and it becomes a staff again. Remember the Egyptian magicians the, the, uh, the sorcerers is actually a better uh, translation of that, are able to do the same thing. They're able to take a staff and throw it on the ground and have it turn into a, stake, a snake. That's no, just, uh, that's no superstition. That's the Egyptians invoking the demonic. And so it is in the Corinthian church that the demonic is the world they come out of. So they're very familiar with spiritual gifts. You might recall, if you read the classics, the Delphic Oracle in Greece. It's one of the, the, the ways that the gods speak to people. And what would happen was that the Delphic Oracle was a person that would sit in this cave and would meditate and then come out and start babbling and speak the word of their gods. That's what Paul's talking about here. This babbling, senseless speech that is pagan, in fact, and not Christian. But this is the context that the Corinthians are coming out of. So when they hear spiritual gifts, of course, they're taking what they know and they're trying to add the Holy Spirit to it, do you see? Paul says, no, it's not like that. Because the Holy Spirit is completely different from those pagan gods, those demonic forces. 
And look, what word does he use? He talks about them being led around, right? Now that's not just incidental. He says that they're led around because they're led around like slaves. There's actually a lot going on in the Greek there. That it's this idea of being told where to go, led in bondage as a slave would. So essentially, look, this is not a new concept for Paul. We go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But the kingdom of darkness is not neutral. It's not as if you are ever free. That's the great lie that we think in modern days. But we are either servants of God or servants of something else. And Paul's saying, not those spiritual gifts. It does not look like that. It does not look like that. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it here in this country. But the demonic is active. So why does St. Paul make such a contrast Because he wants to show them that the Holy Spirit is not about enslavement. The Holy Spirit is about freedom. Look at the contrast here. The Holy Spirit is about joy. The Holy Spirit, far from beating us down, oh, it's true that he wants to purify us, but far from beating us down into slaves, wants to bring us to fullness of life in Christ. St. Chrysostom talks about this, contrasting it with the spirit of slavery. C.S. Lewis also talks about this contrast when he talks about the Holy Spirit's work in us being like a home renovation project. Have any of you ever renovated your house or a building? Is it always pleasant? (laughs) No, it's usually not. It's never pleasant, right? Sure, the finished product's great, but in the meantime, it's hard. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The expectation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, and making courtyards. You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Paul talks about the fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit elsewhere. And so when we look at spiritual gifts, it's one, to build us up, but two, it's to build up the church It's never something that's done individually by ourselves and for our own sake. We're part, we're that that house, but, but that house imagery isn't enough because we're actually part of something more in how the Holy Spirit builds us up.
So he makes a contrast. It's not that we're blind or out of control when the Holy Spirit's at work in us, but it's also not that we're comfortable. And secondly, the Holy Spirit's job is to manifest Jesus Christ. To manifest Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is bringing that forward. That's why he says it's only by Jesus, the Spirit of God, that anyone can say Jesus is Lord. And no one who is of the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed. There's many out there that fall trap into the signs and wonders phenomenon. You'll see it on TV. You'll see it on YouTube. I went and looked at some of it this past week. This idea of Pentecostalism, this idea of extreme charismaticism, which says that it's got to be this great show, this captivating experience for the Holy Spirit to be acting. If anything, that reflects more of a pagan worldview than a Christian worldview. If anything, that reflects something more like the gods of the Old Testament rather than the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's true, the Holy Spirit can do amazing things, but those things are never to glorify the person doing it. So your ears should prick up and the red flag should go off in your head whenever someone comes around saying that he's a prophet or a healer or whatever. Because that person obviously doesn't get it, that he's supposed to be part of the church, that it's supposed to be glory that's being given to God. The two words being used here for spiritual gift are two different Greek words. One of them's used in the first verse. It's um, pneumatikon, pneumatikon, meaning a gift of divine origin. And in verse 4, there's another word used. It's charismaton, charismaton, meaning a charism, a gift of the Spirit, something that's tied to the Spirit. So there is one body, says St. Paul, one Christ, one baptism, one Spirit. Look at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body has, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are of one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what's Paul emphasizing here? He's emphasizing a unity, and he's emphasizing the glorification of Christ. But the Holy Spirit, notice, apportions gift, gifts to individual members to work together as part of the body of Christ and on behalf of the body of Christ. St. Ambrose of Milan, who was the tutor of St. Augustine, and a bishop, writes this, There is one work because there is one mystery. There is one baptism because there was one death for the world. There is a unity and outlook which cannot be separated. 
You can't separate out the divine gifts of grace from the church. They're not superpowers. It's not like the Holy Spirit touches you and zaps you and all of a sudden you're a healer. That's not how it works. But anyone who has ever dealt with groups of people knows that that's a temptation. That people glory in their gifts. We think of them as something that somehow we attained, right? We think of them as something that somehow we deserve. It's just our nature. It's how other things work in this world, right? You might become a good accountant. How do you become a good accountant? By really working hard. You might become a good preacher. How do you become a good preacher? By preaching a lot. You build up, you study. That's not how it works with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just apportions things for the good of the church to individuals. And therefore, we have no right to boast about it, and we have no right to be showy about it, because it's all not for us, but for the glory of God. Yet, it remains a temptation. Now, the Corinthian church is made up, he says, of Greeks and Jews, slaves and free, to which we may add categories, perhaps for us today. The church today is made up of urbanites and suburbanites, middle class and those more in need, Americans, Nigerians. As then, each brought different views and needs to the church. But there must have been some problem here, otherwise Paul wouldn't be addressing it. It's not just a matter of a diversity of opinion that makes for variety and strength of a church. It's a variety of gifts, too. And Paul is here reminding us that no matter whether we're talking about background or skill or spiritual gifts, we are each other's. We belong to each other. We need each other. We care for each other. We are each other's. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 14 through 19. What does Paul write? For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand and do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So we can't look at our own spiritual gifts and say, I'm useless to the church. That's one of the messages here. If you don't know why the Lord has chose you to be here and apportioned what he's apportioned to you, it's not yours to say, well, then I don't belong here. <laughs> Do you see? The Lord has said, no, you do belong here. I have arranged it, says St. Paul. Right? And this should be a word of encouragement to say that if you don't see your spiritual gift, 
then maybe we need to help you find it. Maybe we need to encourage you in it. Maybe we need to see where the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And maybe we just haven't looked hard enough because the Lord has arranged it to be here. Nobody has the right to say, I'm useless to the church. That's not an affront to you, although it might seem humble. It's an affront to the Holy Spirit (laughs) because he's the one that put you here. He's the one that gave you your gifts. Secondly, no one has the right to think themselves the end-all, be-all. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now let's start, uh, let's pick up right in the middle. All right. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, I'll rejoice. That's kind of an odd thing to think about, too. You know, if we're one body, when one person is honored, we should all share in that honor, right? Because of the fact that we're not as visible in our ministries, some ministries are behind the scenes, that doesn't mean they're any less important. But that when the church is honored, all are honored in that. So when the flashy ministries happen, far from being envious towards the person that that's happening to or with, we should glory in it. That's a really hard thing to do sometimes, isn't it? Because our human nature says, no, my glory. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit say, no, the church's glory, my body's glory, and you're glorified in that. Do you see? St. Paul repeatedly uses the word here, belong. It's a word that talks about being um, part of, being a member of. We belong to the body, and therefore we belong to each other. And that belonging is a commitment that for some reason people struggle with today in our culture. You see, a lot of people treat church like going to a movie or like going to a restaurant. It's a nice activity. It's something good to do once in a while. Maybe it's good for my children. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, no, you belong to the church. But the church belongs to you, too. Do you see? There's this mutual commitment to one another that I think we really miss out on when we keep our walls up or keep at a distance. Now, it's true that sometimes hurts have colored our experience with the church. The church is not perfect. It will one day be, but it's not now. And yet Paul's saying, push in because you belong to each other. Look at verse 18. God has arranged you. Look at verse 24. God has composed the body. Look at verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. There's no use comparing yourself to others or desiring that you be like others in the church because each have equal honor and each have equal um, standing 
before God the Father. Even the more unmentionable parts, as the one translation translates, even the parts of less honor, naturally. I've often wondered what he's referring to there. Look at verse 27 through 30. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But that's not the point, verse 31. Earnestly desire the higher things. We might like to translate this into our parlance in the modern day. Are all priests? Are all deacons? Are all vestrymen? Are all mission council? Are all acolytes? Are all lectors? Are all Sunday school teachers? No. And if in fact all were, we'd be in trouble. Paul's continuing to talk about the body of Christ because we're meant to complement each other in the body of Christ. Just as rich and poor complement each other. Just as men and women complement each other. So those with different gifts complement each other for the greater good. There is a higher gift, says Paul. There is a better way, which we're going to talk about next week. It's the way of not just gifting, but of loving The two enemies of the Christian and of the church are pride and competition here. And Paul makes it clear that we have no business boasting in our spiritual gifts, but we also have no business not seeing ourselves as valuable before God. He also makes it clear that just as in these other areas that he's spoken about, there's no place for competition or comparison in the church. Here's the source. He is the source, rather, of all gifts of grace. He is the source of salvation. He arranges the church. He composes the body. He appoints those in different roles. And all is from him so that all can be glorifying him. How can we guard against these twin faults of pride and competition? It's a difficult thing because it rubs us the wrong way, both culturally and naturally. But I think that it's always good to ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? (laughs) Generally, in life, it's good to ask yourself that. But particularly in the church, ask yourself, Does what I'm doing glorify God? Does what I'm doing glorify me? Is exercising this opinion or gift or what action, whatever it is, does this help build the church or does this bring division? Friends, it's never easy, but that's why we have each other. So let's continue belonging to one another. When we struggle, let's push in, not push out. And let's be the body of Christ to God's glory. Amen.